This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between. Join us as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family. For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts. Then we will take knowledge of the grace of God, which is in every man, whatever his opinion or mode of worship. Wasn't this the spirit of our dear friend, George Whitfield? And why shouldn't it be ours? Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon was preached in November of 1770 in central London by John Wesley. Joel, when we talk about Christians and the church, one of the big themes that comes up is unity. This And this makes sense, John 17, 21, that all of them may be one as we are one. And 1 Corinthians, I mean, it's, it's a book, a letter that's all about unity. However, in general, I think unity is, is very difficult to live out. There are differences in how Christians worship, strategize, think and feel, and of course, how we do theology. An example we often point to through church history is this relationship that we're looking at today between John Wesley and George Whitfield. And so, when we listen to this sermon after Whitfield had died, uh, we can think of two people who worked inside inside a rift that was really bad between them, and they worked through this rift and got to the other side. Um, We actually had a really deep conversation about unity on the Do Theology podcast, and one of the Do Theology podcast hosts did read this sermon for us. So if you want to hear more about that conversation and Joel and my thoughts on that, you can check that episode out. It'll be great for you. Um, And we we do recommend you check out their show. Yeah, so John Wesley, and this is going to kind of play heavily into kind of of a bit of a crossover uh, from our episodes about George Whitfield, because as anyone who is a fan of Whitfield or anyone who's listened to that episode knows, George Whitfield and John Wesley were, were really good friends, and they met at Oxford, and they're a part of what we call the Holy Club. That's that's mm-hmm. kind of their their club that they formed there, and it involves several people, but the most famous members that, that we think of today are definitely John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. John and his brother Charles Wesley were actually some of the core founders of that, that Holy Club, and it was that Holy Club that Whitfield was later invited into, and uh, that's where Whitfield really spent time getting serious about his faith and getting serious about what it means to to live your life as a Christian. And this is the infancy. This is the creation of that Methodist movement that was, I mean, I say Methodist movement. Back then, it's something very different than what I we currently think is the modern day Methodist church. It's, These it's, are the beginning, you know, the seeds of the, the, the this whole thing that's around today is yeah. completely different. But this is where it started, and this stemmed from a, a core belief. Their kind of thesis statement that they got up believing every morning was this idea of kind of structuring your day in a way that almost scientifically gives every minute to God, gives the glory to God every minute, whether that's in prayer, whether that's in fellowship with other believers or other people, whether that's serving the poor. They wanted to, again, kind of break it down into like a scientific schedule. What, how, how can we maximize how we're using our time to make sure that we are giving God the glory every moment of every day? This happened around the early 1730s, and I, I think it's really important to stop here and think about that. When you think of the 1730s in Europe, when you think of the 1730s in America, do you think of a Christian world? Because if I'm honest, 
that's what I think. I think, oh yeah, back in time, everyone was a Christian and then the enlightenment hit in the 1800s and then we lost the Christian hold, right? But that doesn't make sense because why would you need a great awakening if everyone's already a Christian, right? Who are these thousands of people getting converted in England and America if everyone there is a believer? These may have been Christian nations at the top level, you know, in, in theory, they're run by Christian kings and Christian queens or whatever. But in reality, at this point in history, Europe isn't looking all that Christian. And this idea, it's a very simple, and I believed it, and I, I still kind of struggle. I, the Enlightenment definitely changed things. But we got, I do think we need to look at history with a little bit more of a complex lens and realize there were different moments where Christianity wasn't really reigning in the hearts of the populace. And this is one of those moments where the average person wasn't really looking at Christianity fondly. So this group, the Holy Club, they, they tried to put God into everything they did. They would bring food to poor families. They taught orphans to read. They visited lonely people in prisons, and they combined it with this idea of personal holiness, fasting twice twice a week, uh, praying together multiple times, and meeting up and reading God's Word and other classic Christian literature together. And to be honest, to me, the Holy Club sounds pretty cool. If I had that at my school, I, I would like to think that would be something I would want to be a part of. It sounds like something I would enjoy. Hey, hey, I would love for somebody, if you're at school right now, go start a Holy Club. See where you can go with it. This sounds awesome. But this name wasn't something they started. They didn't say, hey, we're going to be the Holy Club. People called them that to make fun of them. You know, people called, called them Holy Club people. People called them Methodists. They were attacking them because they thought they were being ridiculous and too serious about God, which tells you the heart of the people in that time that as much as we like to look back at Christian history and kind of put this as a Christian era, this wasn't really a Christian era. Yeah, like Troy mentioned, they were constantly mocked at school as they went about their day. And things got worse and, and a little bit scary when one of the members of the group had a mental breakdown and ended up dying. I feel like there could be a movie made about yeah. about this era, about the college. like the Forget the Dead Poet Society. Well, yeah, what was what was Oxford like during this era? Actually, that would be a really cool movie. I'd Especially because all these dudes, I mean, eight of them became huge. I mean, just gigantic. Exactly. Movies. It would be almost like if today, Francis Chan, Ravi Zechariah, um, John Piper, John MacArthur, Tim Keller. I'm just trying to think of all the famous yeah. Christians we know. We're all at the same school together. Right. And then all went off to became the famous preachers show they are. Me, yeah, show me that movie. Uh, the the death of this Holy Club member, John yeah. Wesley, did, did a good job of pointing out that that member hadn't fasted in over a year with the group. So, like, that's, that's not necessarily what contributed to his death, um, but still a little bit of controversy around mm. that. Something about this experience of persecution just encouraged deeper friendships between the members themselves. If you've ever been through a hard time, if you've ever been in a situation where you're trying to do something for God and people are kind of making fun of you, that's going to bond you. And normally, instead of breaking you, it brings you closer together. Uh, we've talked about before how Whitfield went to America around 1739. If you haven't listened to our episodes, by the way, on George Whitfield, highly recommend them. He is a fantastic preacher, and he has an episode that we looked at, uh, How to Listen to Sermons, and it's it's fantastic, definitely worth your time. Go back and maybe listen. That might help fill in some details and gaps that we're kind of skipping over because we've already done them before. Um, but anyway, in 1739, he goes to America. At this point, he's kind of the spearhead of this really big Great Awakening that's happening in England. It's going amazing. But if you remember, when he came back, he had nowhere to preach. And John Wesley, his friend, is who he had kind of entrusted these churches with while he was gone. What happened? Why were he, Why was he now literally getting letters wishing that his ministry was destroyed and, and pretty much death threats for those eras? So something about the experience of persecution had encouraged deeper friendships between the members themselves. If you've ever been a part of a group where you're kind of getting a little mocked or whatever, but you're doing something good and you stick it out and you, you show them later on what's up, this is maybe that feeling, I don't know, kind of the classic 
movie trope where the the dance crew is not going to be good enough. They'll we'll show them. I don't know. Maybe that's where my head's going. <laughs> but anyway, so we have talked before about how during this time Whitfield went to America around 1739. We've covered uh, Whitfield twice on our show. If you haven't listened to those Whitfield episodes, definitely go back and check them out. And I really think uh, start with. The sermon he did, uh, how, he did a sermon called How to Listen to Sermons. I think it's really great. If you've never thought about how you listen to sermons, go back and check that one out. We really went through his life on that one. And if you remember that one, we said he kind of became the spearhead of the Great Awakening in England at this time. He comes back from America, and none of the churches are letting him preach in them anymore. And he suddenly has nowhere to go. And, and it's this crazy situation where this guy who had been so popular, everyone now doesn't want anything to do with him. But the problem is deeper than that because George and George had left those churches in the care of John Wesley, his friend. Now he returns and he's suddenly confused. What happened? Why, why does no one want anything to do with me? Why am I now basically considered a heretic among these people and and why am i getting letters saying that i I hope your ministry is destroyed yeah so suddenly george whitfield finds himself kind of being unfavored by john and charles wesley and he, he doesn't quite understand why initially you have to know that john and charles wesley and whitfield they were they were as close as close can be. It was Charles Wesley who invited him to that Oxford club to begin with. They were incredibly open-hearted together, and when this rift happened, they cried together. It was Whitfield who called John his honorable sir and called him also a father in the faith. He would always go to him for advice, and he saw him as a wise teacher. And we see these thoughts documented by Whitfield, you know, before he's able to sit down with Charles and John Wesley, and he's 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 trying to think of what the, this rift could be about, and he's thinking maybe it's because he, he let the fame maybe go to his head when he was preaching in America, because he would preach to these huge crowds while Wesley was was over here preaching quietly in Georgia. When Wesley got back, he was shocked to hear that people were calling Whitfield things like the Second Wycliffe and the Morning Star of a New Reformation. So when Whitfield had the doors shut on him. Whitfield started preaching outdoors, and this had never been the practice of the Puritans, and and this era it was something. They, there was a time uh, where they would preach out outdoors, but it was done in secret to kind of avoid the laws of England. Once the churches were kind of reopened and they were allowed to peacefully assemble, this was just kind of seen as an old backwards thing. But when Whitfield did it, uh, Whitfield preaching to this you know supposedly Christian nation, right? Um, hundreds and thousands of people were coming to Christ and were wanting to come to church again, and, and it was working. Wesley was helping organize all these new believers who were coming to the church. You know, Whitfield was really good, he said, at planting the seed, but but Wesley could bring that seed to fruit. But it was here that the issue, finally, this big kind of elephant in the room started to come into fruition, and that is the idea that George Whitfield was a Calvinist and Charles and John Wesley were Arminians. If you're not sure what those terms mean, what we're basically saying is Charles and John Wesley um, did not believe God predestined some for heaven and others for destruction. Whitfield used to be in agreement with them. When he was at Oxford, he would have said the same thing, but he met some Calvinists, uh, especially met a lot of Calvinists while he was in America, and he spent time reading books in their work, and he came back with the conclusion that, no, I, I do think God has predestined certain people for certain places, and this this theology, this thing right here, became what ended up splitting them all up from each other.
They met multiple times to try to come to some type of agreement on the issue. John Wesley thought that Calvinism discouraged people from trying to hear the gospel. Charles Wesley thought that Calvinism made people see God not as a God of love, but one of judgment and hate. And Whitfield disagreed. He thought the Wesley brothers misunderstood the doctrine of grace. And when all of the non-Christians back at Oxford, you know, they hadn't been able to separate them with all their persecution. It's this one issue that ended up being being the thing that, that split them apart, that separated these two people. And in the years to come, there would be two camps that popped up within the Methodist group, one that was Arminian focus and one that was a more Calvinistic outlook on things. And, you know, to some degree, I feel like even still today, most yeah. churches will fall into one of the two categories. Yeah, even the Baptist churches have had that situation. Sure. It's a very common thing, actually, where one kind of sides, one denom- part of the denomination goes one way and the other goes the other way. So this is not, and this is not a fight that we've all settled and Christians have moved on from and nobody right. argues about this anymore. It's still, and it was it was debated before this era as sure. well, um, but it's something that we specifically see split these two people apart. And it's... Th- we see this rough rivalry between the two, uh, and it's kind of sad to see, you know, as as it progressed throughout the years, tent revivals, when one of the Methodist group would spring up a tent revival, the other one would spring one up across the street as well. When one planted a church, the other one would plant a church there. They were both trying to push their views on Calvinism versus Arminianism pretty strongly there. Yeah, it reminds me of like if you've ever seen, you know, a McDonald's shows up and then suddenly yeah. there's a Burger King or, you know, Chick fil A's in town, suddenly KFC's. It's CVS there. and Walgreens. I was just about to say CVS and Walgreens is maybe the most classic where if one comes, you know the other corner is going to see the other one. And that's that's the vibe I'm getting here from the from the Methodists during this decade of fighting where it's like, you're not going to take that city. We're going to be right behind you if you show up here. After a decade, things do begin to cool off a little bit. Um, one of the big things was Whitfield stepped down as the leader of the Calvinist Methodists, and this w- was just due to him feeling like I am a I am called to preach, I am called to evangelize, but I just don't. This oversight stuff, this systematic stuff, the the running all the people and you know signing off on financial paperwork that's that's not really what I feel like God has called me to. I want to just kind of stick to what God has put me in, and that's that role of pulpit preacher. So Wesley took up. Um, much of the approach of overseeing new Methodists uh, and discipling them, and that kind of helped bring these two camps a little bit closer together. Over time, the two groups were able to kind of mend things and get things better. By 1755, uh, Charles Whit- Wesley and George Whitfield, they're, they're friends again. We have a letter of them, and, and basically they're calling each other great friends. And, and Wesley's like, ah, ever since the days that the rift ended, we've been, we're back to being brothers, basically. In 1770, you know, just to show you how far they've improved, Whitfield, uh, when he dies, he specifically says, I want John Wesley to preach that funeral for me. And John Wesley does, you know, and without much lead up, I don't want to, you know, a lot of times we kind of give you a hint of what the sermon's about, but just listen, enjoy this sermon, enjoy these two people who were once as close as father and son on some levels, and then eventually they were bitter rivals and just enjoy listening to John Wesley describe the life of a great man of God. First, a few notable details about his life. Let us first look at a few details of his life and death. He was born at Gloucester in December 1714. He went to a grammar school there until he was about 12 years old. When he was 17, he began to be seriously religious and served God to the best of his knowledge. About 18, he went to university and 
was admitted at Pembroke College in Oxford. And about a year after, he became acquainted with the Methodists, as they are called, whom from that time on he loved as his own soul. It was by them he was convinced that we must be born again, or outward religion will profit us nothing. He joined them in fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays. He was with them in visiting the sick and the prisoners, and in gathering up the very fragments of time so that no moment might be lost. He changed the course of his studies. He was now reading chiefly such books as entered into the heart of religion and led directly to an actual knowledge of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And soon he was tried by fire. Not only his reputation was lost, but some of his dearest friends gave him up. He was exercised with inward trials and those of the worst kind. Many nights he would lay sleepless upon his bed, many days prostrate on the ground. But after he had grown several months under the spirit of bondage, God was pleased to remove the heavy load by giving him the spirit of adoption, enabling him through a living faith to lay hold on the son of his love. However, it was thought necessary for the recovery of his health, which was much damaged, that he should go into the country. He went to Gloucester, where God enabled him to awaken several young persons. These soon formed themselves into a little society, and some were of the first fruits of his labor. After that, he began to read twice or thrice a week to some poor people in the town, and every day to read to and pray with the prisoners in the county jail. Being now about 21 years of age, he was requested to enter into a holy order. Of this he was greatly afraid, being deeply sensible of his own insufficiency. But the bishop himself sent for him and told him, Though I had decided to never ordain anyone under 23, but I will ordain you when you come. And several other providential circumstances came together. He submitted and was ordained on Trinity Sunday, 17 and 36. The next Sunday, he preached to a crowded auditorium in the church wherein he had been baptized. The week after, he returned to Oxford and took his bachelor's degree. He was now fully employed and with the care of the prisoners and the poor lying chiefly on him. But it was not long before he was invited to London to serve the church of a friend going into the country. He continued there two months, lodging in the tower, reading prayers in the chapel twice a week, catechizing and preaching once, and visiting the soldiers in the barracks and the infirmary. He also read prayers every evening at Wapping Chapel and preached at Ludgate Prison every Tuesday. While he was there, letters came from his friends in Georgia, which made him long to go and help them. But not seeing his call clearly, at the appointed time he returned to his little charge at Oxford, where several youths met daily at his room to build up each other in their most holy faith. Yet he was quickly called from there again to supply the church of Dummer in Hampshire. Here he read prayers twice a day, first early in the morning and in the evening after people came from work. He also daily catechized the children and visited from house to house. He now divided the day into three parts, allotting eight hours for sleep and meals, eight for study and retirement, and eight for reading prayers, catechizing, and visiting the people. Is there a more excellent way for a servant of Christ and his church? If not, who will go and do likewise? Yet his mind still longed to go abroad. He was fully convinced he was called by God to do it. So he set all things in order, and in January of 17 and 37, 
he went down to take leave of his friends at Gloucester. It was in this journey that God began to bless his ministry in a special way. Wherever he preached, amazing multitudes of hearers flocked together in Gloucester, in Stonehouse, in Bath, in Bristol. There was no room in the churches to support the crowds. And the impressions made on the minds of many were no less extraordinary. From week to week and from month to month, it pleased God to bless his words even more. Generally, on Sunday, he preached four times to exceedingly large auditoriums, and this alongside reading prayers twice or thrice and walking altogether ten or twelve miles. Then, on December 28th, he left London. It was on the 29th that he first preached without notes. December 30th, he went on board the ship to leave to Georgia. But it was over a month before they cleared land. One happy effect of their very slow passage, he mentions in April, quote, Blessed be God, we now live very comfortably in the great cabin. We talk of little else but God and Christ, and hardly a word is heard among us when together, except about what has reference to our fall in the first Adam and our new birth in the second Adam. From Sunday, May 7th, 17 and 38, into the end of August of the next year, he made full proof of his ministry in Georgia especially in Savannah. There he read prayers and expounded twice a day and visited the sick daily. On Sunday, he began at five in the morning expounding the word of God, and at 10 read prayers and preached, and again at three in the afternoon, and at seven in the evening expounded the church catechisms. How much easier is it for our brethren in the ministry, either in England or Scotland or Ireland, to find fault with such a laborer in our Lord's vineyard than to tread his steps. It was now that he began to see the deplorable condition of many children here, and that God put into his heart the first thought of founding an orphan house. He decided to raise contributions in England if God should give him a safe return there. In December the following year, he returned to London. But though the churches were large and crowded to max capacity, there were still many hundreds who stood in the churchyard, and hundreds more turned away and went home. This gave him the first thought of preaching in the open air. But when he mentioned it to some of his friends, they judged it to be mere madness, so he did not carry it into execution till after he had left London. One day, when he found all the church doors to be shut in Bristol, for there was no church that was able to contain one half of the crowd that would come to see him, at three in the afternoon he went to Kingswood and preached in the open to nearly 2,000 people. On Friday, he preached there again to four or five thousand. And on Sunday, it was guessed ten thousand showed up. The number continually increased all the time he stayed at Bristol. And a flame of holy love was kindled, which will not easily be put out. Indeed, wherever he went, God abundantly confirmed the word of his messenger. He then preached for the first time in Moorfields and on Kennington Common. And the thousands of hearers were as quiet as they could have been in a church. Being again detained in England from month to month, he made little excursions into several counties and received the contributions of willing multitudes for an orphan house in Georgia. Due to the embargo which had delayed the shipping, allowed him the leisure for more journeys through various parts of England, for which many will have reason to bless God to all eternity. Finally, on August 14th, he embarked on the journey. But he did not land in Pennsylvania till October 30th. Afterwards, he went through Pennsylvania, the Jerseys, New York, Maryland, Virginia, North and South Carolina. And he was preaching all along to immense congregations with as 
great an effect as he produced in England. On January 10, 1740, he arrived at Savannah. In January 29th, he added three desolate orphans to nearly 20 which he had in his house before. The next day, he laid out the ground for the house, which would be about 10 miles from Savannah. On February 11th, he took four more orphans and set out for Frederica in order to fetch the orphans that were in the southern parts of the colony. On March 25th, he laid the first stone of the orphan house, and to the stone, with great respect, he gave the name Bethesda, for it was a work for which the children yet unborn will praise the Lord. He had now about forty orphans, so that there were nearly a hundred mouths to be fed daily. But he was careful for nothing, casting his care on him who fed the young ravens that call upon him. In April, he made another tour through Pennsylvania, the Jerseys, and New York. Incredible multitudes flocked to hear him regardless of ethnic background. In all places, the majority of the hearers were affected to an amazing degree. Many were deeply convinced of their lost state. Many truly converted to God. In some places, thousands cried out loud the agonies of death. They were drowned in tears, and some turned pale as if dead. Others were wringing their hands, and others were lying on the ground, and yet others sank into the arms of their friends, but almost all lifted up their eyes and called out for mercy. In August, he set out again and came to Boston. While he was here and in the neighboring places, he was extremely weak in body. Yet the multitude of hearers were so great, and the effects brought on them was so astonishing that the oldest men alive in the town had never seen anything like it before. The same power attended his preaching in New York. Almost as soon as he began, you heard crying, weeping, and wailing on every side. Many sunk down to the ground, cut to the heart, and many were filled with divine comfort. Toward the close of his journey, he made this reflection, quote, It is the 75th day since I arrived at Rhode Island, exceedingly weak in body. And yet God has enabled me to preach a hundred and seventy-five times in public, besides teaching frequently in private. Never did God vouchsafe me greater comforts, and never did I perform my journeys with less fatigue or see such a continuance of the divine presence in the congregations to whom I preached. In December he returned to Savannah, and in the March following arrived back in England. You may easily observe that the preaching account is chiefly extracted from his own journals in which, despite their artless and unaffected simplicity, may compete with any writings of the kind. And how exact a specimen is this of his labors both in Europe and America for the honor of his beloved master during the thirty years that followed, as well as of the uninterrupted shower of blessings which God was pleased to succeed in his labors. It is not much to be lamented that anything should have prevented his continuing this account till at least near the time when he was called by his Lord to enjoy the fruit of his labor. If he has left any papers of this kind and his friends account me worthy of the honor, it would be my glory and joy to organize, transcribe, and prepare them for the public view. A particular account of the last scene of his life is given by a gentleman in Boston. Quote, after being with us about a month in Boston and preaching every day, he went to Old York. There he preached on Thursday, September 27th, and proceeded to Portsmouth and preached there on Friday. On Saturday morning, he set out for Boston, but before he came to Newbury, where he had engaged to preach the next morning, he was prompted to preach by the way. 
The house not being large enough to contain the people, he preached in an open field. But having been infirm for several weeks, this so exhausted his strength that when he came to Newbury, he could not get out of the ferry boat without the help of two men. In the evening, however, he recovered his spirits and appeared with his usual cheerfulness. He went to his chamber at nine, his fixed time, which no company could divert from him, and slept better than he had done for some weeks before. He rose at four in the morning, September 30th, and went into his closet, where his companion observed he was unusually long by himself. He left his closet, returned to his companion, threw himself on the bed, and lay about ten minutes. Then he fell upon his knees and prayed most fervently to God that if it was consistent with his will, he might that day finish his master's work. He then desired his man to call Mr. Parsons, the clergyman, at whose house he was. But in a minute, before Mr. Parsons could reach him, he died, without a sigh or a groan. On the news of his death, six gentlemen set out for Newbury in order to bring his remains there. But he could not be moved, so that his precious ashes must remain at Newbury. Hundreds would have gone from this town to attend his funeral had they not expected he would have been entered there. May this stroke be sanctified to the Church of God in general, and to this province in particular. Now we are in the second place to view his character. A little sketch of his character was soon published in the Boston Gazette, and an extract of which reads, quote, in his public labors, he has, for many years, astonished the world with his eloquence and devotion. With what divine passion did he persuade the impenitent sinner to embrace the practice of piety and virtue? From the pulpit, he was unrivaled in the command of an ever-crowded auditorium, and he was no less agreeable and instructive in his private conversation. He was happy in a remarkable ease of address, willing to communicate, studious to edify. May the rising generation catch a spark of that flame which shone with such distinguished luster in the spirit and practice of this faithful servant of the Most High God. Second, a more detailed and equally just character of him has appeared in one of the English papers. Quote, the character of his truly pious person must be deeply impressed on the heart of every friend of vital religion. In spite of a tender and delicate constitution, he continued to the last day of his life preaching with a frequency and fervor that seemed to exceed the natural strength of the most robust. And though in the pulpit he often found it necessary by the terrors of the Lord to persuade men, he had nothing gloomy in his nature. He was singularly cheerful as well as charitable and tender-hearted. He was as ready to relieve the bodily as the spiritual necessities of those that applied to him. It should also be observed that he constantly enforced upon his audience every moral duty, especially hard work in one's callings and obedience to their superiors. He endeavored by the most extraordinary efforts of preaching in different places and even in the open fields to awaken the lower class of people from the last degree of inattention and ignorance to a sense of religion. For this and his other labors, the name of George Whitfield will long be remembered with the esteem and veneration. That both these accounts are just and impartial will readily be allowed, that is as far as they go. But they go little farther than the outside of his character. They show you the preacher, but not the man, the Christian, the saint of God. May I be permitted to add a little on this point, from a personal knowledge of nearly forty years? 
Indeed, I am thoroughly sensible about how difficult it is to speak on such a delicate subject. What prudence is required to avoid both extremes, to say neither too little nor too much? I will speak just what I know before him to whom we are all to give an account. We have already mentioned his unparalleled zeal, his tender-heartedness to the afflicted, and charitableness toward the poor. But should we not likewise mention his deep gratitude to all whom God had used as instruments of good to him, of whom he did not cease to speak in the most respectful manner, even to his dying day? Should we not mention that he had a heart susceptible to the most generous and to the most tender friendship? I have frequently thought that this, of all others, was the distinguishing part of his character. How few we have known so kind a temper, of such large and flowing affections. Was it not principally by this that the hearts of others were so strangely drawn and knit to him? Can anything but love beget love? This shone in his very countenance and continually breathed in all his words, whether in public or private. Was it not this which was quick and penetrating as lightning and flew from heart to heart? This which gave that life to his sermons, his conversations, his letters? You are witnesses of it. But let's do away with the vile misconstruction of men of corrupt minds. They know of no love but what is earthly and sensual. Let it be remembered at the same time that he was endued with the most kind and unblemished modesty. His office called him to converse very frequently and largely with women as well as men, and those of every age and condition. But his whole behavior toward them was a practical comment on that advice of St. Paul to Timothy, entreat the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters, with all purity. In the meantime, how suitable to the friendliness of his spirit was the frankness and openness of his conversation. It was as far removed from rudeness on the one hand as from flattery and disguise on the other. Was not this frankness at once a fruit and a proof of his courage and strength? Armed with these, he feared not the faces of men, but used great plainness of speech to people of every rank and condition, high and low, rich and poor. He endeavored only by manifestation of the truth to commend himself to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And he wasn't afraid of labor or pain, any more than of what man could do for him, being equally patient in bearing ill and doing well. And this appeared in the steadiness which he pursued whatever he undertook for his master's sake. Witness one instance above all, the orphan house in Georgia, which he began and perfected in spite of all discouragements. Indeed, in whatever he concerned himself, he was flexible. In this case, he was easy to be entreated, easy to be either convinced or persuaded. But he was immovable in the things of God or wherever his conscience was concerned. If it was inquired at what was the foundation of his integrity or of his sincerity, courage, patience, and every other valuable and amiable quality, it would be easy to give the answer. It was not the excellence of his natural temper and not the strength of his understanding. It was not the force of education and not the advice of his friends. It was nothing other than faith in a bleeding Lord, faith of the operation of God. 
It was a lively hope of an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that doesn't fade away. It was the love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Ghost, which was given to him, filling his soul with tender, disinterested love to every child of man. From this source arose that torment of eloquence, which frequently bore down on all before it. From this astonishing force of persuasion, which the most hardened sinners could not resist, this was what often made his head as waters and his eyes a fountain of tears. Love was what enabled him to pour out his soul in prayer in a manner peculiar to himself with such fullness and ease united together with such strength and a variety of both sentiment and expression. I may close this part by observing what an honor it pleased God to put upon his faithful servant by allowing him to declare his everlasting gospel in so many various countries and to such a number of people. And with so great an effect on so many of their precious souls, Have we read or heard of any person since the apostles who testified the gospel of the grace of God through such a widely extended space, through so large a part of the habitable world? Have we read or heard of any person who called so many thousands, so many myriads of sinners to repentance? Above all, have we read or heard of any who has been a blessed instrument in his hand of bringing so many sinners from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. It is true. If we were to talk like this to the lost world, we should be judged as to speak as barbarians. But you understand the language of the country to which you are going and where our dear friend has gone a little before us. Finally, You might ask, but how will we get something good from this awful moment? This is the third thing which we have to consider. And the answer to this important question is easy. May God write it in all our hearts by keeping close to the grand doctrines which he delivered and by drinking into his spirit. First, let us keep close to the grand scriptural doctrines which he everywhere delivered. There are many doctrines of a less essential nature with regard to which even the sincere children of God are and have been divided for many ages, such as the present weakness of human understanding. In these we may think and let think. We may agree to disagree. But in the meantime, let us hold fast to the essentials of the faith which was once delivered to the saints, in which this champion of God so strongly insisted on at all times and in all places. His fundamental point was, give God all the glory of whatever is good in man. And in the business of salvation, set Christ as high and man as low as possible. With this point, he and his friends at Oxford, the original Methodists, as they were called, set out. Their grand principle was, there is no power by nature and no merit in man. They insisted that all power to think, speak, or act right is in and from the Spirit of Christ. And all merit is in the blood of Christ. So it is what he and they taught, 
For there is no power in man until it is given him from above to do even one good work and to speak even one good word, or to form one good desire. For it is not enough to say all men are sick of sin. No, we are all dead in trespasses and sins. It follows that all the children of men are, by nature, children of wrath. We are all guilty before God and liable to death, temporal and eternal. And we are all helpless, both in regard to the power and to the guilt of sin. For who can bring about a clean thing out of an unclean? None other than the Almighty. Who can raise those that are dead, spiritually dead, in sin? None but he who raised us from the dust of the earth. But on what consideration will he do this? Not for works of righteousness that we have done. The dead cannot praise you, O Lord, nor can they do anything for the sake of which they should be raised to life. Whatever, therefore, God does, he does it merely for the sake of his well-beloved Son, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He himself bore all our sins in his own body upon the tree. He was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Here then is the sole work and cause of every blessing we do or can enjoy, and especially of our pardon and acceptance with God, of our full and free justification, But by what means do we become interested in what Christ has done and suffered? Not by works, unless man should boast, but by faith alone. We conclude, says the apostle, that a man is justified by faith without the works of the law. And to as many as receive him, he gives the power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe in his name, who are born not of the will of man, but of God. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But all who are born of the Spirit have the kingdom of God within them. Christ sets up his kingdom in their hearts, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That mind is in them which was in Christ Jesus, enabling them to walk as Christ also walked. His indwelling Spirit makes them both holy in heart and holy in all manner of conversation. But still, seeing all this as a free gift through the righteousness and blood of Christ, there is eternally the same reason to remember, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. You are not ignorant that these are fundamental doctrines which he everywhere insisted on. And may they not be summed up, as it were, in two words, the new birth and justification by faith? Let us insist upon these with all boldness at all times and in all places, in public, those of us who are called to do so, and at all opportunities in private. Keep close to these good, old, unfashionable doctrines. Go on, my brothers, in the name of the Lord and in the power of his might. With all care and diligence, keep that safe which is committed to your trust knowing that heaven and earth will pass away, but this truth will not pass away. But will it be sufficient to keep close to these doctrines, however pure they are? Is there not a point of still greater importance than this, namely, to drink into his spirit, to be a follower of him, even as he was of Christ? Without this, 
the purity of our doctrines would only increase our condemnation. This, therefore, is the principal thing, to copy after George Whitfield's spirit, and allowing that in some points we must be content to admire what we cannot imitate. And yet in many others we may, through that same free grace, be partakers of the same blessing. Conscious then of your own wants and of his bounteous love, who gives liberally and upbraids not, cry to him that works all in all for a measure of the same precious faith, of the same zeal and activity, the same tenderheartedness, charitableness, heart filled with mercies. Wrestle with God for some degree of the same grateful, friendly, affectionate temper. Ask for the same openness simplicity, and godly sincerity. Learn to love without pretense. Wrestle on till the power from on high works in you the same steady courage and patience. And above all, because it is the crown of all, the same unwavering integrity. Is there any other fruit of the grace of God with which he was eminently endowed and the lack of which among the children of God he frequently and passionately lamented? There is one, and that is Catholic love. That sincere and tender affection which is due to all those who we have reason to believe are children of God by faith. In other words, all those in every persuasion who fear God and work righteousness. He longed to see all who had tasted of the good word of a true Catholic spirit, a word little understood and still less experienced by many who have it frequently in their mouth. Who is he that answers this character? Who is the man of a Catholic spirit? One who loves as friends, as brethren in the Lord, as joint partakers of the present kingdom of heaven and fellow heirs of his eternal kingdom. Despite opinion, mode of worship, or congregation, he loves all who believe in the Lord Jesus. He loves God and man, and who, rejoicing to please and fearing to offend God, is careful to abstain from evil, but is zealous for good works. He is a man of truly Catholic spirit who bears all these things continually upon his heart one who has an unspeakable tenderness for their persons and an earnest desire for their welfare, does not cease to commend them to God in prayer, who speaks comfortably to them and labors by all his words to strengthen their hands in God. He assists them to the uttermost of his power. In all things spiritual and temporal, he is ready to spend and be spent for them. Yes, to lay down his life for his brethren. How pleasant a character is this! How desirable to every child of God! But why is it then so rarely found? How is it that there are so few instances of it? Indeed, supposing we have tasted of the love of God, how can any of us rest till it is our own? Why, there is a delicate method which... Satan persuades thousands that they must stop short of it and yet be guiltless. It is well if many here present are not in this snare of the devil taken captive at his will, 
Oh yes, says one, I have all this love for those I believe to be children of God, but I will never believe he is a child of God who belongs to that vile congregation. Can he, do you think, be a child of God who holds such detestable opinions? Or he that joins in such senseless and superstitious, if not idolatrous, worship? So we may justify ourselves in one sin by adding a second to it. We excuse the lack of love in ourselves by laying the blame on others. To color our own devilish temper, we pronounce our brethren children of the devil. Oh, beware of this. And if you are already taken into the snare, escape out of it as soon as possible. Go and learn that truly Catholic love, which is not rash or hasty in judging, that love which thinks no evil, which believes and hopes all things, which makes all the allowances for others that we desire others should make for us. Then we will take knowledge of the grace of God, which is in every man, whatever his opinion or mode of worship. And then will all that fear God be near and dear to us in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Wasn't this the spirit of our dear friend, George Whitfield? And why shouldn't it be ours? Oh, you God of love, how long will your people be a byword among the heathen? How long will they laugh us into scorn and say, see how these Christians love one another? When will you roll away our reproach? Will the sword devour forever? How long will it be that you bid your people to return from following each other? In this moment, let all the people stand still and pursue after their brethren no more. But whatever others do, let all of us hear the voice of him that, being dead, yet he speaks. Suppose you hear him say, Now, at least, be you followers of me as I was of Christ. Let brother no more lift up sword against brother, and do not know war any more. Rather, Put you on as the elect of God, bowels of mercies, humbleness of heart, brotherly kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Let the time past suffice for strife, envy, contention, for biting and devouring one another. Blessed be God that you have not long ago been consumed by one another. From this time on, hold the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. O oh God, with you no word is impossible. You do whatsoever pleases you. O oh, that you would cause the mantle of your prophet, whom you have taken up, now to fall upon us that remain. Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Let his spirit rest upon these, your servants. Show you are the God that answers by fire. Let the fire of your love fall on every heart. And because we love you, let us love one another with a love stronger than death. Take away from us all anger and wrath and bitterness, all clamor and evil speaking. Let your spirit so rest upon us that from this hour we may be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. Thank you.
So this big issue, I don't know if you, you know, we talked about Arminians, Calvinists, we talked about different theologies, denominations. We here at Revive Thoughts don't believe we have the answer. You know, we don't know if this is, you're going to walk away from this and naha, Eureka, now I know what will bring the church together. But I will say, I do think that unity is not possible through our own strength. I don't think we humans, no matter what methodology, strategies, you know, there's no amount of the right words, boldness, political correctness, nothing we do is going to bring everyone together and into the same camp. We have only one way of doing that. And I think that's relying on God. I think it's His Holy Spirit that brings us together and helps us have that unity that we're called to have. And our basically, I think our role in that is just to say, man, God, we're not really good at this. We need your help. And I think that is, if we come to a place of humility in that and ask God to help us, I think we will see Him bring us more into a united front. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of uh, Paul preaching in the book of Philippians when he's calling the church to be unified in one spirit and one mind. And I think that a lot of the times we try so hard to unify ourselves under our own minds, our own opinions, our own thoughts on a matter. Uh, when Paul makes it very clear, it's not through our own minds that unity happens. It's only through Christ. It's only through unity in him that uh, we are able to look past our own differences to something that's bigger than all of us, that that is more important than all of us, that has more authority than all of us, and submit to that head body of the church that is Christ. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Jeremy Howard. Jeremy Howard is the staff pastor at Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah, and he's also the co-host of the Do Theology podcast. You can follow him on his website at jeremyhoward.net. We were recently on the Do Theology podcast, had a lot of fun talking with Jeremy and Kenneth, who's his co-host. Spoiler, we actually went to Bible college with him. You might like it, you might not. You won't know unless you go check out Subscribe to Do Theology over uh, on their podcast. And they do interviews as well, and so they've had some pretty big names on, and if you definitely don't want to miss out some of the other guests that they have too, so make sure you check them out. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, uh, you know, we have another show called Revive Devos. Every single day we're putting out uh, little bite-sized two to three minute clips of devotional content from great preachers. We're talking D.L. Moody, Oswald Chambers, Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, St. Augustine, Richard Baxter, Andrew Murray. Go check that show out. Enjoy that show. We enjoy making it a lot, and it comes out every single day. And so we highly recommend, if you'd like Revive Thoughts, we think you're going to love Revive Devos as well, go give it a subscribe. Yeah, a little two to three minute little uh, little devotional to start your day. And it's narrated by our good friend and Revive Studios host, uh, Nathaniel Owen. So go check that out. He's got a very nice soothing voice. I, I very know. soothing. Very soothing voice. It's a, it's a nice way to take in a Devo at the beginning of the day. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between. On the In Between Podcast, you will hear how to raise children that change the world, ideas to keep the romance alive with your spouse, how to not hate your in-laws, ways to save money for your next vacation, and how to use the Enneagram in your relationships. Join us, Daniel and Christina M. as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family. For more information, go to imbetween.org. That's imbetween.org.